to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. What you're about to listen to is a one-part solo episode looking at two different ways you can justify liberalism, that of John Rawls and that of John Stuart Mill. I try to go over them both and be fair to them both, but as you'll hear, I definitely have a personal favourite, and I think that preference matters. I go on to make some points about how can we think about liberal justification, which might seem like a very philosophical issue, actually matters for how we defend liberalism and pluralism and tolerance in today's world. This one is a little long. I did I did get into this a bit. I, I'll be honest, I had a lot of fun recording this. I was sitting down with like my Cambridge companion to Rawls and my theory of justice and my you know, John Stuart Mill works. and I was, It just felt like something that was going to be really dull. But as I started flicking around the texts and working out what I wanted to say and writing a few lines about, I just, <laughs> I got really excited recording this. And you'll tell, there's moments when I'm clearly just ranting about the most arcane, <laughs> eye-rolling minutia of political philosophy, which I realised recording this is apparently something I care about. So, like, if you're listening to this, hopefully you do too, and you can get as excited by this stuff as I do. And like I say, even though this really does get into the weeds, I think this stuff does matter. So it's quite a long one. I've kept it as one episode because it's one sustained argument, but it, you know, it might well be one you have to listen to in two set- sittings or whatever. But yeah, I had a lot of fun with this, and I... It's great to go back and read all these texts that I haven't touched in a while, so I had a lot of fun with it, and I hope you find this um, interesting and informative. So yeah, let's get straight to it. This is me comparing and contrasting Mill and Rawls, and explaining why I think that matters. Let's just start with a really basic question. Why are illiberal practices wrong? More specifically, why is prejudice wrong? Why is discrimination wrong? If you want to take arguably the most extreme and visceral case, why is slavery wrong? Because let's be honest, if liberalism doesn't have an answer to those questions, it's a pretty poor sort of liberalism, right? Now, Your first reaction is going to be an ideological move. You're going to reach for a political concept. You're going to say something like, prejudice is wrong because it's not fair, or because it's not just, or it's not right, or it's not moral. You're going to invoke one of these essentially contestable values claims. And that's fine. That's that's a legitimate move to make in that space. But then what do you do when you run into someone? Let's just take slavery, because slavery is arguably the most extreme and consequential illiberal practice. You say slavery is not fair. It's not right. It's not just. You evoke your political ideology, in other words. 
then say someone else comes along, and I'm sure at the time, say in US, you go back a few hundred years, you would have found plenty of people who thought, no doubt sincerely, of course slavery's fair, and right, and just, and moral. And they'd be shocked and kind of confused that anyone would ever think otherwise. What would you say in that situation now? Obviously, we're not going to be having philosophical debates with slaveholders, but it just gets to the point. What, what do you do if someone who says, actually, what's wrong with racism? What is our response to that? You know, yes, you say, according to your liberal conception of fairness, that it's not fair. I say, according to my conception of fairness based in solidarity with an ethnic group, that it is fair. Who, what, do we, what arguments can we offer to the effect that our invocation of our values claims is correct. All of this is just to ask the question, how do we justify liberalism? What philosophical legwork do we need to do in order to feel confident that our understanding of justice or fairdom, 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 yes, let's bring that in. It has to do with carnivals and clowns, and you know what? I'm leaving this in the podcast. But what, what do we do? Like, what, what, what philosophy can be used to anchor those claims? Now, as I'm sure you can imagine, there's a whole bunch of different theories here. There's a whole bunch of different ways that people do and have historically theorized about morality and what's what's our ultimate bedrock here in order to justify a broadly liberal set of practices. And of course, the practices they end up justifying will be different. There's lots of different types of liberals, right? I'm just asking here, what are the moves that we want to make to get the thing off the ground in the first place? And so I'm going to take two thinkers, which I think will be familiar to many of you. I'm sure all of you have encountered at least one of these thinkers at some point, if only tangentially. John Stuart Mill and John Rawls. They're from two quite different ages, separated by about 130 years, something like that. And they also employ two quite different philosophical styles with regards to um, how to justify liberalism. And the fault line I want to explore between them is liberal neutrality. Should liberalism aim to be neutral with respect to conceptions of the good? Should the state, the liberal order, discriminate between the aspirations and comprehensive life plans of its citizens? I'll, I'll get into what that means in a sec, but a lot of modern political theory has been concerned with this question of neutrality. And I'm going to give you my take on it here, and I'm going to argue that this isn't just some philosophizing, dancing on the head of a pin, that it does matter. And that is what it can become. And I will say, as, as one observer of these debates rightly noted, that they said um, the debates about neutrality have disappeared into the realms of pure abstraction, and, you know, that might be fair. So I'm not going to give you, like, every last, you know, nuanced argument of where the literature with this has gone over the last 10 or 20 years. I'm just going to take two big thinkers, look at what they say, and I'm going to give you my take on it. And 
you know, there might be some particular nuances of the modern literature or some particular passage in Rawls or Mill that I'm neglecting, but I'm more just taking these two as champions of particular ways of thinking about the world. I'm taking them as representatives of ways of thinking about what liberalism is, how we justify it, what it ought to be, how we communicate it to others. And it's that final point I'll end on, because there's the question of who's ultimately right philosophically, and I'll I'll give you my take on that for what it's worth. You know, you don't have to count me as some master philosopher, but I'll say what I think the arguments are and who's right. But more than that, it's not just about justifying liberalism to others, it's about justifying it to ourselves. And ultimately, I'm going to argue one of these ways of thinking about the world is more useful as a self-understanding of liberalism and would make us more effective politically if we went back to thinking about it that way. So, not to give the game away at the outset, although I think long-term listeners will know which side I'm going to come down on here, but let's play nice and start with like a fair appraisal of rules here. And I will say firstly, in the interests of magnanimity, that I am sometimes a little harsh on rules. So let me say this. The vision that rules extends to us in a theory of justice and political liberalism is a really attractive one. Basically, Rawls wants to argue for a liberal, egalitarian society. And what I like about Rawls is he quite firmly doesn't abandon the economic half of the argument. I think one of the reasons, I talked about this with Ian Dunt, that modern liberalism is struggling in the world today is for a long time, you know, you can think of the Clinton era, the Blair era, a lot of continental figures you could talk about there. Liberalism sort of accepted that on the economic front, everything had to be free market. Any solution to something like poverty or even global warming had to go through market mechanisms. And I think we can say by and large that it was, I'll be charitable, only partially a success. And it just left people feeling unfulfilled. Our elites assumed that the argument about a market economy had been won when that argument had only been won amongst elites. Mass populations, both left and right, never really intuitively absorbed it. And I think that has been a big failing of modern liberalism. So when I talk about the ways in which I think modern liberalism has failed, I want to be clear that Rawls isn't that. He says... Inequality in society, this is his second principle, is only justified to the extent that it can help the least well-off. So this isn't a dessert claim. It's not about we need to reward the rich and punish the poor. He says the only reason that you could have inequality is if you need to incentivize it to raise everyone's overall living standards, particularly those at the bottom. And he says that has to be taken in in parallel with a claim to protecting fundamental individual rights across the board. Cool. There is really nothing there that I disagree with in terms of the two principles of justice. You can quibble, and people do quibble, with the exact wording of the second principle. Should it be to help the least well-off? Should it be to help the, the median person? Should it be to help the mean You know, you can go back and forth there. But I don't think the idea of, like, 
a little bit of inequality, but only in so far as it helps the worst off. You know, prima facie, I don't think that's a horrible thing to say. You know, you can quibble and philosophers will quibble with the details. But there's really nothing about what rules would want to achieve in the world that I think is off in any way. You know, fundamental rights respected, egalitarian society. Yeah, I mean, that just sounds like the codification of common sense to me. So why am I getting into this to contrast rules with an earlier thinker? Well, because this liberal egalitarian society is fundamentally justified not by appeals to comprehensive moral doctrines, but to, quote, public reason. This realistic utopia that he wants us, and that's his phrase, realistic utopia, we would imagine would contain a fair plurality of views, while maintaining, again his words, an overlapping consensus that all, quote, unquote, reasonable members can accept. So let, let's go into just what that means for a minute. So uh, Thomas Nagel, in an essay um, called Rules and Liberalism, which I'm going to be quoting from a bit, and that's just in the Cambridge Companion to Rules, which I've used a little bit for this. So if you want a good secondary text, I would recommend Cambridge Companion to Rules. That's what, that in the primaries is what I've used exclusively for this. So Nagel starts by talking about, quote, deriving the political order from a particular comprehensive value system, end quote. And what he means by that is people might have a firm value system of, like, their life plan, what they think is good for persons, so by analogy, a religious person might say, you know, it's good to be celibate until you're married, um, praise God, um, have husband and wife have their respective roles, and, and sort of stereotyping religious people here, but there are certainly religious people who believe that, right? And they might say, that's what's good for people. That's what you know makes people happy and makes them flourish. Therefore, that's what people should do. And the purpose of political power should be to get people to do that. So that is an argument from a comprehensive value system to a political outcome. And I think most liberals in the audience, whether they're personally religious or not, would reject that argument, right? So that's sort of what Nagel has in mind here, I think. And he goes on to say that, quote, orthodoxy of this kind has always required oppression. And you can just think about the long history looking around the world today in Muslim theocracies, looking back in time to Christian theocracies, um, looking to um, other, you know, Nazis had a particular ideal of what the good was for the person, right, the Aryan man and all of that. You can just find a litany of examples, varied and eclectic, but all terrible, of people trying to force a particular life plan, a particular conception of the good, a thick conception of the good, to use the philosophy language here, down the throats of their populations in a way that, as Nagel said, always required oppression. Now, that is true, but I don't think it's true that it has always required oppression. I think there's plenty of states that have been justified or partially justified or practices within states by appeals to comprehensive moral values that aren't oppressive at all. Um, so not all theories which 
link political values to comprehensive ones are necessarily repressive. Concretely, liberal theories like Mill, um, I also, you know, someone like Hobhouse comes to mind here, can be constructed which have the highest value of individual freedoms and give central importance to the claim that people should autonomously decide their life plans. But they get that conclusion from a particular claim about what's good for people. So, Nagel, I do like Nagel, by the way, as a philosopher. I think we all do. We all like Nagel, Thomas Nagel, right? He's certainly not unaware of these sort of older liberals, but I think misunderstands the key difference between them and modern philosophical liberalism. I'm just going to sort of shorthand the Rawlsian project as modern philosophical liberalism, by the way. So, in the same essay that I quoted from before in the Cambridge Companion, he says the big difference between Mill and Rawls is that, I'm quoting here, Rawls' account of the individual rights central to liberalism is not instrumental, end quote. So, basically, Rawls, according to this reading, values individual rights and freedoms because, again, a quote from Nagel, quote, he thinks they are good in themselves, end quote. They are principles of right which are prior to the principles of the good. Whereas Mill, according to Nagel's reading, sees individual rights as second-order principles. Individual rights and freedoms are things you do in order to promote utility. But, and this is the fear, if it turned out promoting utility was actually best served by by having discrimination, say, then that's what we should do, according to Nagel's reading of Mill. So, not to disagree with the great philosopher, well, actually to explicitly disagree with the great philosopher, I don't think Nagel is reading Mill correctly at all. Um, So, let's go straight to On Liberty, which is just going to be my main. I'm not going to go into the minor works for Mill here. What you need is in the main text, right? So, we're just going to go straight into On Liberty here. So, what does Mill say about his ultimate foundational appeals? Well, unlike Rawls, who can be a bit obtuse in this respect, Mill just says straightforwardly that he he considers utility to be, quote, the ultimate appeal in all ethical questions, which would seem to cash out Nagel's reading of him, right? But then if you read the second half of that sentence, he says, quote, it must be utility in the largest sense, grounded on the permanent interests of man as a progressive being. End quote. And you'll forgive the male pronoun here, it's a different age. But the permanent, so utility is, quote, the permanent interests of man as a progressive being. What does that mean? Well, he goes on to tell us. So we can understand the progressive being part of this by looking at chapter three, where he says, quote, first part of chapter three, the free development of individuality is, quote, an end in itself. Also, hang on, Mill. You've said utility is the ultimate ethical appeal, but now you've also said the free development of individuality is the ultimate ethical appeal. Well, because utility is the permanent interests of man as a progressive being. If utility is enabling 
let's say, human functioning and flourishing, because human beings are, according to this theory, innately pluralist and innately progressive, we are progressive beings, we are improvable beings, then it follows quite coherently from that that the free development of individuality is an end in itself. It's good in itself, and for its own sake. So, the other half of that is the permanent interests part. So he's saying people are progressive beings, not necessarily meaning they believe in progressive ideas, but meaning they progress, they develop, they become better, they enrich themselves. And the purpose of a political theory is not just the protection of persons, but the drawing out of the possibilities of the human being. So human beings are progressive, right? But they also have permanent interests. Well, what are these, right? So, in the same paragraph, so this is all just there for you, you know, on liberty. I'm not doing some weird hermeneutic reading or going to the minor texts. This is just how Mill self-describes his ultimate philosophical bedrock about what justifies a liberal theory. So, what are the permanent interests? Well, he quotes Wilhelm von Humboldt, lovely name, right, from The Spheres and Duties of Government, as saying, and this is one of the few sort of long quotes from another author in On Liberty, so I think we can theorise that this is important to Mill, and he says that it's important. He says, quote, The end of man, or that which is prescribed by the eternal or immutable dictates of reason, is the highest, most harmonious development of his powers to a complete and consistent whole. And therefore, the object towards which every human being must ceaselessly direct his efforts is the individuality of power and development. So, yes, Mill, end quote, sorry. So, yes, Mill is a rule utilitarian. He's claiming that morality consists in following a set of rules whose observance overall would maximize utility, right? But, and it's a but, 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 for the purposes of this and the way Nagel thinks about the division, the conception of utility he's employing is one that includes within itself ideas of individuality, freedom, and development. Now, here's what I want to drill in here. There's no contradiction in Mill claiming these things as intrinsically valuable. So, in exactly the same way, Rawls says justice is the supreme good of societies. And he says that individual freedoms and equality of opportunity and to some degree equality of outcome are intrinsically valuable. Is there a contradiction there? You know, on the well, hang on, Mr. Rawls, hang on. I, I do stupid voices on this podcast, I'm not quite sure why. Hang on, hang on, Mr. Rawls, hang on. I'll do I'll do my sort of peevish voice for this one. Hang on, Mr. Rawls. Um I'm seeing here in the first part of theory of justice that you just said justice is the supreme good of society. That makes sense. It's in the title. But then you go on to say that uh, individual freedom and equality of opportunity are intrinsically desirable. Which, which is it, Mr. Rawls? Well, it's both, right? So justice is the supreme good of societies and justice and its demands, however you want to say it, justice entails protecting individual freedoms. Doi. Like, that's not, that's, that's not a contradiction. 
Stepping back, here's, here's how I visualise what's happening here. In both cases, the theorist is using what we might term... I mean, this is just what I call it in my head. This isn't in the literature. But, but what I think of them as is meta-concepts. So, in each of these cases, they're having a particular value that is just sort of a circle around all of those things that they consider intrinsically valuable. Remember, most mature political ideologies, and certainly all mature political liberalisms, have multiple core components. They have a, a plurality of things that they describe as intrinsically valuable, and they sort of use in Rawls justice, in mill utility, just like this meta-concept as just like a marker for like those things that I think of as intrinsically valuable. So to provide another example, um, Hobhouse, and this is just in Hobhouse's Liberalism, which is a wonderful, easy read and a short book, which I highly recommend anyone read. But Hobhouse has a similar set of concepts of, you know, individual rights, freedoms, progress, development, and so on. And he says, let's sum these up in a way that, quote, allows us to look at the whole from some central point, end quote, and says the best way to do this is, quote, the conception of liberty, end quote. So again, you see that, and he's, and what I like about the older liberals is they were much more self-conscious about what they're doing. They're not saying liberty is this absolute metaphysical freestanding. No, he's just saying, look, liberty is a good way of summing up a distinct but related cluster of values or concepts that represent the pluralism of things that I consider to be intrinsically valuable. Liberty, and again, it's a lovely quote, allows us to look on the whole from a central point. So that's what's going on there. So if you accept that characterization of the difference, that you just have different meta-concepts, justice on the one hand, utility or freedom on the other, does it make a difference? Does it matter? Does it matter what particular label we use to sum up what liberalism is arguing is intrinsically valuable? Yes, I think at least in this case that it does. Um, so, even though these meta-concepts are similar in terms of the internal configurations of concepts within them, the, the significant dividing line is that justice is an exclusively political concept. So Rawls's conception of justice attempts, and I don't think successfully, but attempts to limit its application solely to the political sphere. And this tracks back to the idea of neutrality, right? Justice then is going to be about and is going to be justified by claims to public reason, but like claims to like pure philosophical argument that exist independent of and prior to the comprehensive life plans, the thick theories of the good that its citizens have. It's something that's going to be able to be justified to everyone, in other words. It's not something that's going to come into telling you how to behave on a first date, say, right? So, one effect of this thinking about the core of liberalism as a cluster of concepts is it removes conceptions of development and conceptions of progress from the central 
uh, conceptual cons constellation, what I call the core of Rawls's theory. Why? Well, the idea of people developing, progressing, um, the idea that liberalism should aim at the moral improvement of persons, these are all far too clearly tied to particular normative understandings of human nature, particular ideals about what are good for people, what their life plans should be. Um, they're all too tied to all of that to have any role in a theory that explicitly disavows people's comprehensive life plans, their theories of the good, as a basis for liberalism. So, in the newer philosophical liberalism, the idea is public reason will justify a more limited set of liberal core concepts. In the older liberalism, the idea that an, a, a, a conception about what is good for people, an idea of people as progressive developmental beings, will justify liberalism broadly, both political liberalism and a more general social liberalism. So, which is, which is right, which is, um, which is the correct way to go about justifying liberalism, which grounds the stronger set of arguments against illiberalism. Well, here's my first pass at this, is before we even get to which is better, I don't think one of them is possible, and I've not heard this set of arguments, which aren't mine, by the way, I'll give you my sources, but I've not heard this set of arguments rebutted, that I don't think the the proposed dichotomy Rawls is attempting to create here between liberal and comprehensive values is possible. And I don't think it's possible at the theoretical level, and I don't think it's possible at the practical level. So this is kind of a, a, an argument. For, let's do the theoretical level first. And this is like a complicated argument from linguistic theory, but I think it's right so let me just give you the argument, because I could spend a whole episode on this alone. But here it goes. At a fundamental level, the way we use different pieces of value terminology is highly interlinked. How we appraise one particular event or phenomena will affect how far we do so with others. So from this perspective, it's dubious how far political and comprehensive, to use Rawls's words, how far political and comprehensive values could ever be fully separated. So in other words, more concretely, if you invoke fairness as meaning a particular thing, that will modify and limit the meanings that you can credibly attach to justice. That doesn't mean, by the way, that you have to have a perfect rational coherence, but that our, our word meaning is supplied by its proximity to other words, and that they do exist in our language exists as part of an interdependent whole. That's the claim. So, more concretely, our comprehensive moral doctrine will narrow the range of meanings we can tenably attach to concepts such as choice, freedom, individuality, rationality, and so on. So, if we use the word fairness to mean a particular thing in our day-to-day -day lives, that is going to 
Not mean we have to use the exact same thing politically, but it is going to curtail the range of meanings that we can credibly attach to that concept. So, if you were going to create a theory of justice that's neutral with respect to conceptions of the good, all of these different concepts, freedom, choice, fairness, whatever, they would either have to be removed from your attempt to justify that liberalism, or used without any reference to the meanings usually attached to them, right? So Rawls isn't doing the first, right? He's using words like justice and fairness, like which we use, you know, you're a parent, you give one kid a bigger slice of birthday cake, what does the other kid say? They go, it's not fair. That's not fair. You never taught them what fair means, they just know it. You know, political values the door they get into your head through is the same door that they get into your head, that the, the language gets into your head through, right? Um, so, you know, we know that the kid wants the same amount of birthday cake. That's their thick theory of the good. That's their comprehensive life plan. They want to stuff their face with birthday cake. So when we define fairness politically, are we going to say, oh, well, let's not talk about fairness, let's talk about Zargon and just create a new concept? Well, I don't know that that would be viable, and Rawls isn't doing that. Or he can say, my conception of fairness has nothing in principle to do with how we use it in describing our everyday reality and our comprehensive life plans. If you're going to go with the latter move, though, um, that would, and there's an argument in um, Frieden, the same book I always cite, um, Ideologies and Political Theory, he says, quote, that would legitimate any decontestation of political concepts. So, in other words, if you're using it without respect at all to everyday usage, then anything would become permissible. Any meaning of it would become valid. Indeed, if all conceptions of political concepts derived from or linked to a comprehensive moral doctrine are to be considered neutrally, then I think it's honestly debatable whether liberal discourse would be capable of conveying meaning at all. Now, that's a bigger and stronger and thicker argument, um, and I won't make it here, but I'll refer you to a good paper by Taylor called Strong Hermeneutics and the Politics of Difference in Radical Philosophy that makes that case. And I, I'm convinced by that case. I don't think we can use words completely untethered from their regular day-to-day -day meaning. And I think what that means is there's always going to be a little bit of that comprehensive moral doctrine that sneaks along for the ride when you're using them. But that's the theoretical case. Let's look at the practical case. The practical case that the state can be neutral, regardless of if it should, is just clearly misguided. There are many, many, many issues that cannot be resolved without reference to comprehensive moral understandings. Consider abortion. This cannot be settled, I don't think, by appeal to individual rights, for, because it's not, I mean, look, it's not self-evidently clear how far, if at all, these might apply to a fetus. Nor can Public reason help us out. Take Rawls's original position. Rawls has this idea that we should design a society not knowing our place in it. That's a highly truncated version of the argument, but like, we should design a society not knowing our place in it, right? So, 
that would just bring the argument full circle, for people would just end up debating who would be included in the original position. So this isn't an issue that can be resolved within the realm of public reason, but on which the state must take a stand. There's no neutral point. If the state changes the law with regards to abortion, it endorses a particular side. If it doesn't, then it implicitly endorses whatever the status quo was. Now, what the Rawlsian will say is the Rawlsian will say that even if both sides disagree, they can again, quote-unquote, reasonably accept the outcome, provided it is the result of a fair democratic process. And that's sort of the argument of political liberalism. Um, and that's what um, Scallion, in Rules on Justification, again in the Cambridge Companion, calls, quote, the narrower doctrine, end quote. So it's not so much that the state will necessarily be absolutely neutral and that everyone will agree with everything it does. It's that people will be able to accept the results as the outcome of a process that they recognise to be fair. Um, no, 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 that doesn't work. Um, the moral stakes with abortion are so high that both sides can, and in practice they do, claim that the issue should be a constitutional one. Look, look at the contemporary debate on this. Um, the majority has no moral authority to control people's bodies, say the pro-choice people. The, the, the majority has no moral authority to permit the taking of human life. You can't just vote for a genocide, which is what's happening with abortion, say the pro-lifers. So even this more limited conception of state neutrality doesn't you're still left where you started. There's, there's no outcome. There's no process of reaching an outcome that can be accepted by all sides. Consider animal rights. Do some animals, or all animals for that matter, have rights comparable to those of humans? Some people say they do. How should the state proceed with regards to that claim? Now, what I've heard in defence to this is that these are quote-unquote boundary issues. And I think liberalism is aware that it struggles with boundary issues. So in other words, boundary issues is like the scope of who or what gets included within rights protections. And so I guess the argument would be something like this. Once you settle boundary issues, if we can sort of bracket them, then once we agree on boundary issues, um, a theory like rules could be applied neutrally. This, this, to my mind, makes the dilemma of modern liberalism worse. Because <laughs> not only can't it be applied in certain cases without violating its own neutrality, it can't be applied at all. Because to apply it, we'd have to discover the set of things that it can be applied to, and you've just granted me that we can't do that without making comprehensive moral judgments. And you know, boundary issues aren't a small thing that we can bracket. I began by talking about racism and slavery. What is that if not a boundary issue, right? Now, that doesn't mean there's not an answer. That doesn't mean that there's that, that, that people who might try to draw the boundary around their own race, that there's not reasons that we can oppose them. But those reasons will involve comprehensive moral understandings. They'll involve theories about a normative account of human nature. They'll involve saying, 
that black people, to, to, to say that black people share with us all of the most important features of our humanity that we would want to share and develop and protect, is to make claims that are comprehensively moral and involve normative understandings of human nature. Like, I just sort of don't get the argument on the other side of that. But let's, let, let's go further than that. So maybe I'm wrong that it is theoretically possible. And maybe I'm wrong that it's practically possible. In any case, it is not the case that Rawls's theory is neutral with respect to normative understandings of human nature. If that's the goal, it doesn't do it. So Rawls distinguishes between thick and thin conceptions of the good in terms of the facts that people in the original position are aware about. So in other words, in Theory of Justice, Rawls said, how would you design a society if you were behind the veil of ignorance? So in other words, if, you're, don't, if you don't have access to um, knowledge about where you would be in that society, who you would be in that society, and so on. But they, they can't be coming from perfect ignorance. So he says, well, give them the basic, like, facts about people. Value-neutral facts, mind you, thin, a thin conception of the good. Not something that would prejudice you in favour of a particular life plan or a thick conception of the good, because you don't know which life plan you'll have, you want to consider them neutrally, right? Um... So, Rawls, distinguish, in distinguishing fundamentally between the right and the good, Rawls is trying to create an account of justice comprehensive, independent of any comprehensive moral doctrine, any sort of normative account of human nature. But his account of the right is in, underpinned by this thin theory of the good. So the thin theory is sort of like... Like, the facts about human nature that you're going to let the people in the original position know, so that they at least have a starting point with um, designing this society. Okay, I can see how that might work. So something like human life expectancy, something like that, maybe. Something like people tend to be between four and seven feet tall. These, I can see, are like facts about people that you know, you, you might be able to incorporate while still being neutral with respect to fundamental life plans. No! When it, the, the thin theory of the good assumes that individuals possess a preference for certain quote-unquote primary goods, which are, and I'm just taking this all from Theory of Justice, um, page 61 in my version, somewhere around there. They are political liberties, freedom from arbitrary arrest, freedom of speech, assembly, thought, conscience, and, quote, the right to hold personal property, end quote. And the assumption is that individuals decide desire more of these rather than less. This thin theory, then, is in contrast to a thick theory, which entails a more comprehensive set of goals. But that that doesn't sound right to me. Does that sound right to you? Um, Frieden says, quote, the very terms suggest a continuity rather than a disjuncture, end quote. Well, quite. But 
maintaining that there is a difference to be had here is of, quote, major importance for Rawls. As in, just taking this quote from Schwartz, moral neutrality in primary goods, because he wishes to show that, quote, assuming a preference for primary goods does not commit him to claims about the moral validity of particular conceptions of the good, end quote. Okay, so what does that mean? So it means Rawls is saying, no, 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 no. What I'm saying has nothing to do with normative understandings of human nature. It has nothing to do with talking about people's comprehensive life plans. I'm just assuming that there's some basic things that all people want. Um, But a socialist Rawls might well object that the inclusion of personal property among the the basic goods that people are assumed to desire. The socialist might say that to base on a society on the principle that people desire more rather than less wealth, that, the socialist tells us, I don't know, prevents them from forming strong ties of camaraderie and affection. And Rawls says, well, they don't have to accept more of them if they don't wish to. You know, a committed Marxist might just claim that the very presence of such temptations is a corrupting influence, and that um, a system based on actually a shared control of goods is much more in his interest. That's um, an argument that I take up from that Schwartz paper, I just quoted, so check that out if you want to see it in more detail. But the point but the point isn't that the socialist is right and that we should have no property. I don't think that he is. Rather, that the thin theory contains a number of assumptions about what people desire that can't be fully justified without reference to a thicker theory of the good. So, if the parties in the original position, i.e. the people who were deciding how to structure society before knowing their place in it, possess this thin conception of the good, then I, I don't think that what they create can be described as being created neutral to um, normative understandings of human nature, how we think people ought to be and ought to live their lives. He also gives them, and again, I'm just quoting from Theory of Justice, the general facts about human society, end quote. And although these are presented as objective knowledge, this contains any number of normative assumptions about human nature. So the most discussed example of this in the literature is Cohen's objection to the assumption in the second principle that talented people will need additional incentivizing in order to work hard. Remember, rules allows inequality to the extent that it helps the worst off. Well, the assumption there is that people are motivated by rational economic self-interest, so in order to get people to work, there needs to be some sort of um, inequality in order to incentivize them. Now, again, I'm not even saying that Cohen is right. Simply that Rawls requires us to accept a particular normative understanding of human nature, specifically that it's normal and legitimate for people to demand that certain types of work are better rewarded in terms of wealth. You you, you might accept that or not, but that is a normative claim about human nature. And there's 
so many examples that could be given. For instance, rules allows that parties in the original position have access to the, quote, the principles of economic theory, which are, look, economic theory is a bleeding political ideology. It's not, ju- it's not just that it contains normative accounts of human... I mean, economic theory is based on a normative account of human nature as individualistic, rational, egotistic, and wealth-maximizing. I don't think anyone would dispute that. That, that, that. that is how economic theory describes people. What is that if not a normative account of human nature? Um, more generally, when one considers the vast range of descriptions of human nature within different branches of psychology, economics, sociology, so on, one can, you, you can't just say these are facts about society, objective and independent of normative understandings. Indeed, just quoting again from the Schwartz paper, any one of these accounts, quote, would seem to involve a morally controversial view of human nature, end quote. Not to say morally wrong, but morally disputable, morally controversial. So, I don't think it's possible in theory. I don't think it's possible in practice. If it were, I don't think Rawls has achieved it. That's the negative case. What's, I've been picking on Rawls, right? I've been being mean to, to old Rawlsy. <laughs> old Rawlsy. <laughs> okay, I'm laughing at my own jokes. I'm still going to keep that in. But okay, so what would a Rawlsian say back? Um, maybe something like this. They would say, yes, this is challenging. Yes, there are difficulties with this way of justifying a political theory. And this is what Nagel says. Um, again, this is in the Cambridge Companion. Um, Nagel says, it's still worth pursuing, even if it's, and I quote here, I found this sentence fascinating. He says, quote, more difficult and perhaps less likely to persuade in actual political debate, end quote. More difficult and perhaps less likely to persuade in actual political debate. I find that a fascinating admission on the part of a defender of this theory. But what's the argument? Why is it still worth pursuing? Um, Well, for a start, it's contended that to base a political theory on accounts of the good, as we started with Nagel saying, will lead to a repressive state of affairs in which people are told how to live their lives. And it's claimed that... Only a theory which detaches itself from such concerns will be able to justify itself all members of a liberal, pluralist society. So, let's start with the first point. Basing a liberal theory on a normative conception of human nature can, and has, led to a desire to telling people how to live their lives, but need not, and often has not. In some forms of liberalism, you do get that. So T.H. Green um, was quite a, you know, he, just to give one example, uh, was a strong advocate for prohibition. Quote, quote, drink is the greatest impediment to freedom that exists in England, end quote. So that, that's certainly a paternalistic type of liberalism, right? But, but that's based on a very different idealist conception of freedom as, quote, doing something worth doing or enjoying, end quote. 
But this isn't a necessary consequence of a more comprehensive liberalism. So look at John Stuart Mill. Quote, Drunkenness, in ordinary cases, is not a fit subject for legislative interference. End quote. So, Mill's the opposite. He wants people to have the freedom to make their own choices and to get it wrong, if needs be. And here's what I want to stress and highlight and underline. He's opposed to this interference, not in spite of, but as a direct consequence of, linking his conception of liberty to the idea of self-development as a goal worth pursuing, as an intrinsic aspect of a normative account of human nature. For someone to develop a life plan because they've been told to, you know, that the reason you don't tell people what to do is because of what we think is good for people. It's because of our normative understanding of human nature. Quote from Mill, just telling someone to grow and develop themselves, quote, does not educate or develop him in any of the qualities which are the distinctive endowment of a human being. End quote. Hobhouse, again, if you haven't read Hobhouse's liberalism, it's super short, it's super accessible, go read it. Hobhouse um, says the same thing. Telling someone how to live is, quote, merely crushing him. Quote, merely crushing him. And he goes on to say, quote, as a moral discipline, it's a contradiction in terms. End quote. So, you know, like, the whole argument about why we don't want to tell people how to live their lives is based on an idea about what is good for people. The whole point is that it's good for people to decide it for themselves. It really matters, Mill tells us, not only what men do, but the manner of men they are that do it. The self-choosing man is strong, and again, you'll forgive the male pronoun in all of that. And so people, Rawlsians have this weird counter-argument where they're like, well, it'll still result in us telling people how to live their lives, um, just that we'll be telling them to grow and self-develop, and they may not want to do that. And the response is very simple. The response is, if people don't want to do this growing and self-developing that liberals want them to do, they shouldn't be forced to, for the reasons living, for the reasons given. As, as Hophouse says, it's merely crushing them. Mill's theory, and he's explicit about that, may well lead us to want to persuade or encourage or entreaty people to do so. But I don't see anything wrong with that, actually. I don't see that as a mark against the theory. The next thing Nagel says, and the defenders of this say, is, let me try and do this in my own words, it would be illegitimate to put such an account, a comprehensive liberalism, into practice as people must consent to the form of government and a normative account of human nature will never gain universal consent. Hence, a political system based upon it could never gain universal consent. I think as, that, that's my own words, but I think that's the argument, as I understand it. Um, look, dude. Rawls is old Rawlsy, and Nagel is dude at this point. Um, so I've just spent a lot of time with this stuff and I like, you know, I'm familiar with the arguments and I'm like, yeah, this is, this is what I think about them. And look, you don't have to agree with me. You can think I'm being dangerously misguided, but I'm not going to like, you know, dance around and pretend I think something's a brilliant argument when I don't. Um, you know, so basically 
will never agree about what's good for people. Hence, if we make that the basis of our liberalism, people will never agree about our liberalism. Uh, Sure, as an object-level fact, I'm sure that's true. But the thing is, no political system has ever achieved universal consent. And a degree of coercion, and there's many different types of coercion beyond violence, but a degree of coercion has always proved necessary. And that's not something that I think liberalism needs to be especially squeamish about. Now, it might be right that one of the tasks of a liberal political theory is to reduce these instances of coercion, and fair, right? Um, But then it's at least plausible that Mill's theory would be less coercive in practice than Rawls. So just to give one example, Rawls, for instance, (laughs) I find this funny sometimes, Rawls advocates using schools as a means of societal control so that, quote, children growing up in his society, so, quote, come to accept his principles, and states, quote, should not object to practices of moral instruction, end quote. Now, to be fair, he tones that down a lot in political liberalism, but that is in sharp contrast to Mill, who, though he supported universal education, was really suspicious of the power that education gave governments, always wanted to see diversity and pluralism in what people were being trained to believe, and diversity and pluralism in teaching people to think morally. More generally, you could say that by being as egalitarian as it is, Rawls' state would necessarily be larger, and hence require more institutions, more coercive apparatus. And of course, you can argue it the other way with other examples. The point is that a priori, it's not clear to me which theory would involve the most coercion of unwilling citizens. It would sort of just depend how it went, right? Like, I don't know just looking at them both on paper, which would involve more coercion. And of course, being the essential contestability type that I am, I'm going to say, well, it depends what you mean by coercion. I'm going to make that stupid point, but, you know. (laughs) Anyway, moving on. Here's what a Rawlsian would say back. They'd say, you're missing the point. You're missing the point. Um, yes, you know, if you have a bit of paper and then you go out and implement it, you don't necessarily know what the results will be. Just look about com- look at communism, right? That's not what I'm arguing. Here's what I'm arguing, the Rawlsian says. Look, both theories involve coercion in application, as all would. The difference is that Mills rests on premises that not everybody can accept. Okay, let's meet this one head on. Yeah, that's true, but it's no truer for Mill than it is for Rawls. All political theories rest... Okay, so, firstly, all political theories rest on conceptions of essentially contestable concepts which are necessarily subject to disagreement or dispute over their meaning. Yeah, that's, that's just a thing about the way our social and political worlds are structured. Um, even... Even if you don't um, grant me my sort of essential contestability stuff, um, look, rules requires the acceptance in terms of his premises, not his conclusions, in terms of his premises, of far more points that a, a range of different views are going to have, have, have trouble accepting. For a start, if we're just starting with theory of justice, then we might not accept the basic justificatory device of the original position. The, you, know, you remember what I said, this um, choose the society without knowing your place in it 
sort of deal, which is essentially, and is argued for and recognised as such, you know, contract theory to a higher realm of abstraction, right? It's just the contract is occurring amongst, amongst hypothetical parties rather than um, real ones. Well, I think this is just answered by a single sentence in Mill. Quote, Society is not founded on a contract, and no good purpose is answered by inventing one in order to deduce social obligations from it. End quote. Boom. Don't get up again. Um, the thin theory of the good, which we are required to accept as a premise of this argument, contains as I've just been over, a number of distinctively liberal assumptions about human nature. We're required to accept as a fact that talented people require extra incentives to work, which many socialists would not accept, and that it is the task of a political theory to correct, as far as possible, accidents of birth, which many conservatives and libertarians would not accept, there's the general assumption that the state has the moral authority to intervene in order to establish certain sets of relations and radical distributive arrangements, which almost all of the centre-right would have difficulty squaring with their comprehensive moral views. Um, anarchists would object to the assumption that there should be a state, Communists can object to the general assumptions about rational individualism, and the far right would object to all of this, right? So th th there's every point of these premises which are appealing to universal reason. And no, they're appealing to things that can be and are disagreed about in regular political debate. This isn't some airy realm of abstraction, it's just more political arguments. You're just deriving them from the political rather than sort of from an account of human nature. It's not, there's nothing about one that that's, makes the political arguments less contestable than the arguments about human nature. They're both contestable. And actually, if I'm on it, if I'm on it, I think Mill and Hophouse's developmental conception of human nature, that the deriving the justification from liberalism for a particular idea about what people are and what's good for them, I actually think it could be accepted by a greater range of people. It could be accepted not only liberals, but by most socialists, by libertarians. So von Humboldt, whom Mill quoted, employs a very similar notion. I think you could use this as a basis to make appeals to many mainstream conservatives, and even possibly some anarchists and others on the non-liberal left. It doesn't assume the nation-state into existence, although I think generally would lead to that. It would not, I want to note, be accepted by committed Marxists, and it would not be accepted by quite a lot of conservative religious ways of thinking. So again, it's not universal, none of this is, but in general, I tell me what you think about this, I can't help shaking the feeling that the foundational assumptions of Mill in the real world seem far more likely to be generally accepted. Indeed, it's been argued on um, this paper from Schwartz, Moral Neutrality, that um, I've been quoting from, that due to the restrictive nature of his assumptions, particularly in theory of justice, Rawls is unlikely to convince anyone who is not already a liberal democrat. A theory that incorporates a conception of human good 
won't be inherently more controversial than one that does not. Indeed, it's possible, and I think this is the case when it comes to Mill versus Rawls, that a wider consensus may be established around a conception of the human good than around political precepts. That's sort of the question I've been taking on this whole time, right? What are we appealing to to justify liberalism? The final argument that people make is, and this I, you know, let me, let me just try and take this on. So it is that they'd say it doesn't respect people's moral autonomy to construct political institutions with the purpose of maximizing a conception of the good that they don't share. The arguments, okay, let me just try and put this in my own words. The arguments, this is what Rawls or Rawls Defender would say. The arguments for conceptual structure must be based on principles all reasonable people can accept. Now, there's a number of responses before we even get to the fruit of that argument. You can raise feasibility issues, such as those mentioned, uh, the conceptual ones and the boundary issues ones. Further, I think the basic problem with this argument is that it rests on the false belief that there are values or reasons that everyone can accept. As I've just stated, I don't think there's any place to stand where you'll have a premise that's not contested in this space. Now, the way the rules yet takes it into account is, I think, really problematic. They say that in order to treat people with respect, you only need to treat quote-unquote reasonable people in this way. And I've been putting the word reasonable in quotation marks this whole essay throughout it. So what's going on here? Well, he's basically saying people to whom the, the appeals of public reason are open, are reasonable. Someone who would not listen to what someone had to say because they were black, say, would not be a reasonable person, according to this sort of idea. So here's the thing, though. To distinguish fundamentally, between reasonable and unreasonable people on the basis of their thought, behavior, and political actions is to, drumroll, employ a morally controversial account of human nature of the exact sort that we're supposed to be avoiding. So, look, let's just break this down. First, the opponent of including a normative understanding of human nature has picked out certain beliefs, such as agreeing to free speech, toleration, pluralism, blah, blah, blah and certain forms of conduct, i.e. being willing to participate in public reason with all that that involves. And they've positively valorized these. Then, they've gone and held up these valorizations to establish a moral norm. It's their normative. Those who think and behave in a certain liberal fashion are reasonable. Those who don't are unreasonable. Unreasonable people. Why am I reminded of the deplorables comment here? The unreasonable, though, and this is the thing, the unreasonable would be far more numerous than modern philosophical liberals seem to imagine. I think they think it's just like a handful of religious lunatics. Look, though it's less acceptable than it was, large minorities of white Americans are racists. Large minorities of people, maybe majorities are sexist. There's many homophobes. There are many people in our society who do not believe that everyone has an equal right to be heard. Now, 
There's different degrees and kinds of that, of course, and I think it should be understood as existing somewhat on a spectrum. But, and I'm not saying you're wrong to think they're unreasonable, but having this large-scale stigmatization of large sections of society as unreasonable cannot be maintained without reference to a broader, presumably liberal, comprehensive value system. However unreasonable, and this is actually a point I want to make, it's not just that, yeah, you've described them all as unreasonable, but if the purpose of this argument is about respecting the moral autonomy of persons, you know, yes, they may be unreasonable, but how respectful of them are we being if we simply proclaim that we don't have to justify our political system to them? That there may be, sure, some disrespect in Mill's approach of justifying political institutions based on a conception of the human good, but he at least attempted to justify them to everyone. He didn't dismiss, and I I want to dig in on this actually, I didn't have this in my notes, but I'm just going to go through this. Mill didn't dismiss, he he spends a lot of on liberty directing arguments specifically to, quote, the opponent of free speech. And this mirrors, I don't think, I don't think rules caused this, but this mirrors a more general trend. I talked about this with Ian Dunt in my conversation on real-world liberalism with him, where liberalism has forgot to have, how to have real-world scrappy bloody-knuckle political fights. Liberalism has made its arguments in court, it's made them in journals, It hasn't felt as if it needs to, or if it can, justify them in the realm of real public competition. When I talk to liberals, there's just this endless hand-wringing about how we, what are we going to do about the Fox News voters and the hate and the, you know, they accept defeat even before they've started. They think there's nothing they can do to, to combat this. I'm not saying Rawls is responsible for this sort of pessimism. And I just say to liberals, look, there are guns on the table in front of you. Pick up one of them and shoot them. You know, there are argumentative strategies. There are public discourse strategies that liberals have employed. If you want to make it all about reason over emotion, then there's emotions always going to win. But there's no reason that you can't make emotional appeals for liberalism. Oh, but, you know, love, it's, it's a more delicate and, you know, fleeting thing than anger and fear. I'm, dude, I'm talking about appealing to anger and fear. Look at my home country, the UK, where in support of the liberalism that the EU is supposed to um, embody, anger and fear have been very successfully marshaled to a fierce and angry and aggressive resistance to what they see as an encroaching illiberalism. I actually feel that our ability to speak to people's guts, to motivate people, and to really forcefully impose impose a liberal order is actually we're in pretty good shape right now in both the US and the UK. I don't know that we'll win in either case, be it Brexit or the 2020 election, but we have resources here and we have the ability to speak to people. And it's weird. I find it so weird that we don't, that we assume that we can't, that liberalism is something that the common man will never understand. And, and, and then on the far left, we don't even want to try. You know, I, I like, why do I call myself a liberal when almost every, you know, if you put my top 10 policy preferences down, 
you know, they would include stuff like prison abolition, a very radical egalitarianism, stuff that, that way out to the left of Bernie Sanders. And why don't I call myself a radical then? And I know it sounds like a small difference, but I talk to radical friends who would write down a very similar list of 10 things they want to see in the world. And they're sort of and they're outraged that a particular BLM speaker gave a talk to Trump supporters. And I'm like, well, it may or may not have worked. I thought it was a fine talk. But wait, are you really saying that we should never talk to Trump supporters? We should never try and persuade them? And I remember this has happened twice to me. Now, people who I respect, who I think their values are right, and I don't think they're idiots. And I think, like, basically, I'm, I am in this tribe. Why am I pretending I'm not? They're really shocked that I would suggest that we do. They're like, of course we shouldn't talk to Trump supporters. These are just bigots, and they're, well, as Rawls would say, right, they're unreasonable. These are people who are not reachable by appeals to public reason. Sure. They're absolutely not. That doesn't mean they're not reachable. And when you tell me we can't even try, it makes me realize, like, wow. We actually see the political world really, really differently. Like, I sort of am like, we're basically in the same boat, right? And then when you say it's essentially an insult to their victims that you would ever even consider talking to a Trump voter, I'm just like, wow. Wow, we really have just really different visions about what's going on here. Of course we can. Liberals, you are heirs to a ferociously successful ideological tradition that from 1750 to 1850 went on a meteoric ascent, unlike any ideology ever has in human history, and these older, darker, feudalist ideologies just took them off the board one by one. You are heirs to an ideological tradition that has motivated countless thousands of men and some women to stand and die in a field somewhere for no other reason than an attachment to these abstract values. You are heirs to a tradition that has successfully changed human nature. You are heirs to a tradition that have said, we don't like how people are, what they what's intuitive to people, what's instinctive to them. We're going to change that. Liberals changed human nature. You are heirs to a tradition every bit as much as fascism or communism, indeed more so, that has successfully imposed itself through conquering armies and burning cities. Liberalism has its blood and glory moments as much as anything. Now, we as liberals see all of that as defensive and as defending ourselves. I assure you it doesn't look that way to our enemies. Remember that. You are heirs to a terrible and noble tradition. Stop acting as if you're the ideological equivalent of the kid on the playground getting beat up. Stop arguing. Stop assuming that we could never compete with nationalists for, for you know, people's hate and their fear. We could never activate their, our, their emotions for something as noble and abstract as our liberalism. You hold, whether you want to admit it or not, you hold a comprehensive moral doctrine. <laughs> and you are arguing for that comprehensive moral doctrine in the public square and pretending that you're not. So just do it. If you think it's right, if those are your principles, stand by them. For God's sake. Look, let's bring this back to Mill versus Rawls with the sort of reasonable reason, whatever, right? Are we insulting someone's fundamental moral autonomy by saying, I am going to coerce you to do things? 
And my reason for doing so is a particular account of human nature, which you might not share. Yeah, sure, maybe some disrespect in that. However, it's not the choice between that and nothing. It's the choice between that and coercing them based on political principles, right? I actually think that it respects someone far more and on a deeper level, and I just feel so comfortable. I don't, this isn't to say I respond to every Twitter troll, I don't, but I feel so comfortable engaging with the ideas of racists and bigots and so on, because I think they're wrong. And you know, ultimately, this is what I'm saying to them. I'm saying, listen, and I think this respects them far more. I will attempt to justify any use of coercion over you because of our shared humanity, because I respect you as an autonomous being. But let's be real, we're going to disagree over principles and premises alike. I think there's a deeper respect to that. Relative to saying to someone, which is what Rawls said, and a lot of modern liberalism has got it in its head to say, I will attempt to justify any use of coercion over you, if and only if you play by the liberal rules of discourse that I think are appropriate. I don't think that respects people very much. Do you? Maybe they don't deserve respecting. Maybe we don't need to respect the unreasonable. But your whole argument was that we needed to respect the, 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 the person's fundamental moral autonomy. And here's my final point. I think the arguments that you get from these comprehensive moral understandings are better. I think by, by saying that we can't, even though it kind of does, but in saying that we can't make reference to normative understandings of human nature, modern liberalism has stripped out notions of development and progress from its central core. And, and this, this impoverishes the theory. The notion of open-ended self-development has always played a role in liberal theory, in justifying both intrinsically and instrumentally diversity and pluralism. Let me just make the case. It's valuable that someone should be able to lead their own life, not because letting them do so conforms to some abstract set of rules, but because by this process, human life becomes rich, diversified, furnishing more abundant ailments to high thoughts and elevated feelings. Quote from Mill. This idea that our highest political goods are unrelated to the human good, and that they consist in mechanical obedience to abstract rules, has always seemed really intuitively strange for me. A pluralistic, developmental understanding of human nature is just a much better foundation for a pluralist society. And here, I can do no better than Mill's description. Quote, Human nature is not a machine to be built after a model and set to do exactly the work prescribed for it, but a tree which requires to grow and develop itself on all sides according to the tendency of the inward forces which make it a living thing, end quote. Which make it a living thing. We are talking about living things here, not points in a machine. And so much liberalism seems to want to reduce people to that. And this contrast, actually, between mechanical and organic, 
It repeats itself throughout liberal thought of this period. Hobhouse writes in Liberalism, Progress is not a matter of mechanical contrivance, but the liberation of living spiritual energy, end quote. How many, you know, we think modern liberalism, like just, you know, we're technocratic and we can't explain it to people. Have you tried talking like we used to? The liberation of living spiritual energy. Why are we embarrassed to talk like that? And, and, and it's a better set of arguments. So progress is grounded on this developmental conception. It's the furthering of open-ended self-development. It's the belief so sacred to these older liberals and so absent amongst modern liberals that human society can be improved. That people in pre- at the present time are not at the final stage of their development. In fact, they are, Mill says. Contemporary people are, quote, but starved specimens of what nature can and will produce, end quote. And so, if a developmental understanding of nature, of human nature, supports progress, then progress grounds and supports and justifies liberalism more generally. Individuality and pluralism are not just intrinsically valuable, they're instrumentally valuable as a means of social progress. So, to take an extreme case, why is slavery wrong? I started the episode with this. Let me give you my answer. Why is slavery wrong? What do we say to someone who thinks slavery is just and fair? Well, there's two reasons, actually, why slavery is wrong. Or oppression generally is wrong. The argument can be sort of transposed between them both of which relate to furthering a human good, both of which are grounded in the idea of human functioning and flourishing. So, slavery's wrong in the first case because it causes extreme human suffering. There's often a lot of physical pain involved, and even when there's not, the social degradation and exclusion is psychologically damaging to human beings. But so, psychologically, physically, slavery causes extreme human suffering. Let's just do a really simple tautology here. It causes extreme human suffering. Extreme human suffering is bad, and we should design our political institutions so as to avoid it. Now, I'll grant you that's not a very sophisticated argument, but it's correct, and it seems odd to me that that would be a controversial thing to say, that a liberal would look at that argument and go, oh, no, you can't do that. That's not respecting people's moral autonomy. What? Slavery hurts people, messes them up psychologically and physically. It's bad, right? Um, Secondly, slavery is wrong because it's wrong for us as well. What do I care about the slave, says the slave master? Because keeping people as slaves is just throwing away great scientific advances, great works of literature, the the next great political idea that would further human flourishing. And, And we lose all of this because those who otherwise would have produced it are wasted in a life of servitude. I don't think anyone can be a great genius, but a great genius can come from anywhere. I quote from the great philosopher, the Ratatouille movie on that one. How many, though? (laughs) But, like, but think about this. If a great genius can come from anywhere, as I think they can, and history has shown that they can, then how many Einsteins, we might wonder, 
died in the cotton fields of the Deep South. How many Shakespeare's has the human race lost, due to the fact that most of its citizens have lived their lives, without being the opportunity to learn to read and write, often quite avoidably, often intentionally, say in the case of women? When we make the choice, the choice to allow poverty, to allow oppression, to allow limits on what people can say and how they can lead their lives, we cut away the chief means of social progress. So this idea grounds a powerful set of arguments for why we should embrace and expand the pluralism in our society that are unavailable to rules. Given how central these notions of development and progress have been to liberalism historically, the most striking thing about rules, I think, is their omission. And honestly, when you look at the restrictiveness of who is and is not a reasonable person, um, I'll quote from Evans, pluralizing liberalism, liberalizing pluralism. He says, it's debatable how far modern philosophical liberalism may be even able to justify pre-existing liberalism. He says it's debatable, quote, how far, if at all, its principles and institutional forms can adequately accommodate the pluralism that typically characterizes modern societies, end quote. So look, I don't mean to beat up on rules too much, and I'm not even arguing that this isn't an interesting avenue of philosophic understanding to start with the political and try to be independent of more comprehensive values. Look, what I'm saying is this. We should be aware in pursuing this new liberal project that it's so far proved unsuccessful and that I think there are strong arguments that it's impossible. We also should be open to other approaches. As liberalism does flounder a little in the modern world, I think it is worth considering that liberalism is not one thing. It's many things. It's a family of many different things within it. And that the general way of thinking exemplified by rules is only one of them. And it may not be the best one. And in fact, I don't think it is the best one. I think I personally prefer the older liberalism. The liberalism that says there's nothing wrong with grounding liberalism on furthering human development, providing we sort of stress that it's self-development that's most valuable. This way of justifying liberalism, first and foremost, about what is good for people, the approach can be simplified, and I'll leave you with a quote from Mill with this. He says, quote, Among the works of man, which human life is rightly employed in perfecting and beautifying, the first in importance surely is man himself. End quote. All the things we do politically, all of our struggles, the first thing that we sacrifice human beings for, that we sacrifice their labor and ingenuity for, surely are other human beings, and surely it's that simple. And this approach to liberalism can give us a richer understanding of the liberal philosophical project, a deeper and but more immediate sense of the value of diversity and pluralism. And it ought never to have been abandoned.